As many of you know, we've been working our way uh, passage by passage through the book of 1 Peter. We're going to take a break from that today. We'll be looking at the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, please turn towards the back to the book of James. going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, but I'm going to go ahead and read verses 3 and 4 as well. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God bless the reading of his word. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, we can't adequately express our gratitude to you for your mercy and your grace. We are sinners who deserve your holy wrath for our rebellion. Yet you reached down your hand of mercy and took our sin upon yourself on the cross. Father, forgive us as we continually fail to obey you and love you the way that we should. May your spirit Convict our hearts and drive us closer to you through whatever means necessary. I'm reminded of what the psalmist says in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, make yourself known to us. May I be a humble servant in your hands this morning. Speak through me now and glorify yourself in this message. In Jesus' name, amen. The age of 25, it became clear that I needed back surgery. I had initially injured it in college, lifting weights, and never received the proper care that I needed to address the issue. The pain and the inconvenience that this injury would cause me over the next four years of my life were unwelcome, to say the least. I ended up having three surgeries during that time and seemed to be in a haze, taking medication just to tolerate the pain. The roller coaster I found myself on had a number of passengers that included those closest to me, including my sister Rachel, who's here today. I lost my job. I nearly lost my home and much of my physical freedom. Sleeping, focusing, and even having conversations became daily challenges. That trial in my life is what I found myself reliving these past few days. I would never have willingly chosen to be in that trial, but as I look back, 
at that time in my life, I know it was a beginning of a journey that has led me to where I'm at today. The deeper I found myself emotionally, physically, financially, and mentally, the higher I found myself spiritually. I know that journey had nothing to do with me. I felt more helpless those few years of my life than I can even say. But God did a work in my heart that needed to be done. He broke me, and he showed me that he could truly meet my every need. To be in the midst of trial or affliction with no sense of purpose often causes us to question God. I believe a lot of those questions arise out of an ignorance and a lack of understanding how God works in the lives of his children. The good news is that God's word brings us a great deal of hope and direction as you and I struggle to appreciate the many trials that we face. I believe God gives us principles in his word that bring joy to a weary soul in the midst of the battle. That brings us to the main idea of our text today. Trials in the life of a believer increases knowledge which cultivates joy. Look at me, look with me if you would to uh, verse 1 in James chapter 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James, the half-brother of our Lord, who originally rejected Jesus as Lord in John 7, now serves as leader of the church in Jerusalem. James wrote to Jewish believers who were scattered throughout Gentile lands around Palestine. James very likely wrote this letter pastorally, seeking to comfort and encourage those who used to be a part of his flock in Jerusalem, who were now scattered abroad. The scattering of those believers can be associated with the stoning of Stephen and the subsequent persecution led by Saul, who we know later became the great Apostle Paul. James desires to encourage and strengthen these precious believers as they face difficulty in foreign lands. The book of James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It focuses on godly living and wise behavior. James instructs his readers to evaluate themselves through their trials and recognize the sovereign God who permits them. A continual theme throughout this letter is that trials or tests are a means to evaluate the genuineness of our faith. I want to focus today on the first two verses of chapter 1 in James. We will see how joy in trials begins with a proper attitude. When we face trials with a negative attitude, we inadvertently communicate that we don't trust God. 
A child who knows their father loves them, controls everything in their lives, and only seeks their eternal good should not face trials as one who has no hope. The attitude of hope and trust, however, must be grounded in the understanding that God desires his children to be holy. When we know the purpose of our trials, we can then cultivate a proper attitude that allows us to find joy in the midst of them. So, how is it that increased knowledge cultivates joy? James tells us in verse 2, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He actually exhorts his readers to be joyful in all sorts of trials. This seems like it could be sarcasm, right? But, as we shall see momentarily, this command starts with an attitude that is grounded in truth. This is an attitude determined to find joy in painful trials. So, let's see how we can develop a positive attitude that produces joy in trials. There are three ways we see this in verse 2. First, we must accept that trials are inevitable. This simple truth prepares our hearts not to melt when the heat is turned up. It prepares our minds to be calm and steady when the flood of pain comes in after we lose a loved one. It tempers the anxiety and the fear we feel when a severe illness falls upon a child or when we lose a job. Following James's greeting in verse, verse 1, verse 2 reads, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This word when here suggests the certainty of trials in this life. We should not expect a life free from trials. That would be diluted. It's also important to recognize that God created this world perfect. He created it as a world to be without trials. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. But Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve sinned. And they led the whole of creation into being cursed with pain and death. So the world we find ourselves in is a result of sin. It's because of this truth that trials are inevitable. I took a rafting trip a couple of years back with a few men from our church. Not expecting at all to fall in. But no sooner had we gotten started did I find myself plunged into the cold, icy waters of the Akagami. And all the training that they gave us before the trip went right out the window as I clawed my way back with help. Thank you, Joe Herbanowitz. He's here somewhere. 
Yeah, Joe, you remember. Yeah, Joe pulled me back in with all his might, huh? <laughs> yeah, with help, thank you, Joe. Back into the raft. All I could think about was getting out of that water, getting out of that, that fearful situation and back to the safety of the raft. See, our expectations often don't equate to reality. The point is that life has a way of violently forcing, it's violently forcing us into the rapids of affliction against our will. I thought myself to be adequately prepared to handle any rocks or unexpected waves that crashed into the raft. But I soon realized that my strength was no match for the unexpected. And in a similar way, we often come to realize how weak and how desperate we become in our trials. This is designed to drive us to the God of power and to the God of comfort that we serve. To drive us to seek his guidance through prayer, to lean on him for strength, to find his will in the scriptures, and to humble us in our weakness. Despite the Bible's repeated warnings of the inevitability of trials, our first instinct is to want out of it rather than accept it. But we must accept the reality of trials. Secondly, understand that we will face a variety of trials. Look again with me at verse 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The trials we face come in all shapes and sizes. The word various here can be translated as multicolored or diverse in character. These can range from the physical trials, such as illness, injury, or disability. They can be emotional trials, such as losing a loved one, going through a difficult divorce, having estranged children, or struggling in a marriage. These trials can be mental such as dealing with anxiety over finances, stress at work, or a failing business. They can also be spiritual trials, such as guilt over a sin that you're struggling with, or decisions that have caused you to doubt your salvation. These various troubles have a way of disrupting our peace, of disrupting our joy and disrupting our happiness. For instance, we live in a frenetically paced reality wherein we pack our calendars so full of activity that we hardly have margin to respond to them in a godly way when difficulty comes. And all of a sudden, our peace, our joy, and our comfort become impeded. These trials come in various forms, and they come at the most inopportune times. If only they came when we were expecting them, right? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> trials have a way of just popping up. 
And while they might be outside of our control, they're never out of God's control. They never catch him by surprise. Therefore, we can count it all joy when we meet these trials in all their various forms. Thirdly, we must choose the right response to trials. Verse 2, James uses a command instructing his readers to do what? Count it all joy or consider it all joy. The knowledge of the reality of trials of various kinds leads us to a choice. The very word choice indicates something that originates in our minds. In other words, you and I can decide how we respond. We are not animals in a strict sense with an undeveloped stimulus response. We are not pre-programmed robots that follow an unbroken pattern of trials equals misery or trials equals depression or trials equals sadness. God has blessed each of us with a mind capable of reason and choice. And we can choose an attitude of joy. A wise person will choose to be joyful in trials. How oxymoronic it seems to choose joy in trials, right? Choosing joy in trials contradicts the natural tendency we all have to view any and all trials as negative. We can all understand how young children, and certainly a lot of us adults, can set their minds on being miserable to the point that no matter what happens, they refuse to find happiness or joy at all in any circumstance. So, how is it that joy and trials can exist in the same reality? I want you to notice two things counterintuitive to common experience here in verse 2. Two things that are extremely important to understand how joy and trials can coexist. First, whom do you know outside of the Christian faith who would consider trials or trying circumstances to be joyful? Secondly, notice whom he addresses. Brothers. In other words, a non-Christian cannot do this. Therefore, we cannot expect a non-Christian to consider their trials joyful. There is a supernatural work of God that is done in the hearts of his children. Romans 8.28 says, It's a promise that God works all things, including trials, for the good of whom? Those who love God. Though there are some who say all things happen for a reason, this promise of God is only given to believers. That promise is that nothing happens in the life of a Christian that is meaningless. Nothing. A believer can trust in the one permitting the trial, and that one being the sovereign God of the universe. For those of us who have had 
our faith tested uh, any number of times in the trials of affliction. I think, is there anything more precious than knowing that your faith is the real thing? That with each trial comes a purifying and a strengthening of our faith. Just as metal is tested by fire and removes inequities, impurities, and weakness, so too God is demonstrating to us that true faith is not something that this world can destroy, no matter what comes our way. Now think of Job. We all know Job. He lost everything that he loved. His family, his children, his livestock, his body, his health. Yet he exclaimed in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. The incredible truth that God is teaching us in trials is that because our faith does not fail, we have assurance and we have security in our eternal destiny. Revelation 21.4 says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The irony of it all is that we can respond to trial after trial with an attitude of joy. God is a loving Father who uses even the pain and the struggles in the lives of His children to manifest joy. We can choose the attitude of joy because of the providential sovereignty of the God that we serve. I love this quote by J.C. Ryle. He says, Nothing whatever, whether great or small, can happen to a believer without God's ordering and permission. There is no such thing as chance or luck or accident in the Christian's journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God. And all things are working together for the believer's good. An unbeliever has no promise of purpose in the raging rapids of affliction. But just as we read in Romans 8, believers can even be joyful while their heads dip beneath the waters. We can choose this joy because we know that any and all afflictions that we face are under the complete control of an omnipotent God. Acts 5 gives us a glimpse into this reality. The council of the Pharisees, under the leadership of the high priest, arrested Peter and imprisoned him along with several of the other apostles. The text says that they were beat and then released. And then verse 41 says that when they left the presence of the council, they did what? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They actually rejoiced 
after they were beat and imprisoned. They responded with joy. Peter and the other apostles chose to rejoice because their sufferings were the result of obedience to Christ. Verse 28 says, The high priest charged them not to teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and the apostles responded, how? That they would obey God rather than men. The apostles displayed confident trust in the power and the purposes of the God that that they served. So as this year comes to a close, we must ask ourselves, did I choose obedience to, to Christ regardless of the consequences? Did I compromise my convictions to avoid negative reactions from family or friends? Have I taken advantage of the opportunities that God has placed before me to tell others about the hope that I have and they too can have in Jesus? We should all seek to honor the Lord we serve as this new year begins. May we stand boldly for the truth in a world that is certainly full of lies. May we take advantage of the opportunities that God puts in front of us to tell others about what Jesus has done for them and what he's done for us. And and may we have a reverential fear of God that causes us to fear him and not men. Some of you may not know that I'm a full-time private investigator. And one of the um, things that, that I have to do in that job is um, I have to learn how to obtain information from people without them knowing it. When I first started, I had no experience and almost zero knowledge about the ins and outs of the job. I have to engage people in conversation that's designed to pull that information out of them that they may not want to give me. But uh, one of the things about my job as an investigator is that the clients want what they want, and I need to do it in any way I can. That skill doesn't come naturally to most people, and it certain, certainly didn't come naturally to me. I basically become a fictitious person that's designed to fit each of these circumstances I'm in and put people at ease. And I have to do all of this without arousing any suspicion at all in the subject that I'm talking to. My first few years of actively developing this skill were challenging, to say the least. I was often nervous and anxious and even scared at times, depending on if I was in, say, downtown Baltimore or downtown Philadelphia. But as I continued to grow through those experiences and gained more understanding about what I was expected to do, I developed those skills that I needed to become a better investigator. Those experiences gave me the confidence that now leads to excitement and, yes, even joy 
in those same situations I found myself in early on in my career that made me so nervous and scared. The same can be said about the trials that we face. With each new challenge that we find ourselves in, we can learn more about ourselves and how weak and how inadequate we really are. But most importantly, we see how powerful, how sovereign, and how sufficient God is. Finding joy in trials starts with the knowledge that they're inevitable, and they come in a variety of forms. Understanding this truth will prevent the shock or the surprise when we find ourselves in yet another trial. Peter encourages us in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We experience the greatest joy in trials when our faith is tested and it proves to be the real thing. As a note, if we find ourselves in a trial, may it not be because of our own sin, right? May it be as it was for Peter and the apostles, because of our commitment to serve the Lord, to obey Him, regardless of the consequences. We should be encouraged by these committed believers who chose to offer praise to the Lord on the heels of a beating and imprisonment. There is one other example from the life of the Apostle Peter that I would like to direct our attention to. It's in Matthew chapter 14. It's a familiar passage to many believers and even familiar to many unbelievers as well. The text describes when Jesus walked on water during a violent storm. In verse 26, it describes the disciples' fear as they thought Jesus was a ghost as he came towards them walking on the water. But they soon recognized that it wasn't a ghost at all. It was the Lord. Then we see Peter call out to the Lord, and he actually steps out of the boat into the water, walking on the water, in the midst of this violent storm. Verse 30 says, as he was out on the water, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. The thing I want us to see here is faith led Peter to step out of the boat and onto the water. But it was doubt that caused him to sink. When we find ourselves in the midst of a trial and in the middle of another storm, we must keep our eyes focused on the Lord of the storm. The moment we begin to turn our eyes to the winds of doubt and the waves of vacillating emotions, we will find ourselves sinking into a joyless existence. Earlier, I mentioned a personal trial that God used in my own life. 
He used that trial to pry open my eyes to see a truth I, I believe we all must come to see. It's likely that most of you can relate to that trial in my life to one degree or another. And if you're like me, you can say that it's not until Christ is all you have that you know that Christ is all that you need. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said he pleaded with the Lord three times to remove a thorn in the flesh. But the Lord said to him in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made purpose in weakness. We may often find ourselves pleading with God to remove the thorn in our flesh that is causing us so much pain. And we may also receive the same answer that Paul did, that his grace is indeed sufficient for us. You see, the weaker we are, the more clear the grace of God shines forth. Have you come to the place where that verse isn't just words on a page, but it's a reality in your heart? In conclusion, remember that trials in the life of a believer increases knowledge, which then cultivates joy. Trials in this life are inevitable. They come in many forms. But we can choose to respond to them joyfully. We can do this, number one, because of the power of the Spirit of God that's within us. His sovereign control, knowing his sovereign control of all of the circumstances in the lives of his children. And the assurance that we have in our salvation as our faith is only strengthened through each trial that we face. I want to emphasize that we serve a God who understands our weaknesses. He knows sorrow and he knows pain. Hebrews 12.2 says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the, the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus found joy in the cross because he saw the end result of his suffering. If Jesus had not suffered on our behalf, what joy could there truly be in our suffering? But Jesus is not just our example, right? He is indeed our Savior. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. How our joy increases in the knowledge that he died on that cross as our substitute, not just as an example. Jesus said in John 6, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Scripture also tells us that there is salvation in no one else. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to read a quote by John MacArthur that I really enjoy. He says, being thankful for adversity is never easy, but... It is always right. From experience, 
I know that difficult times are the ones in which God seems to be most at work in our lives. Strengthening our weak spots, comforting our hurts, and drawing us to a greater dependence on Him. A well-known businessman offered this perspective. Good timber does not grow with ease. The stronger the wind, the stronger the trees. Let's not neglect to thank God for the winds of affliction that He sends our way. As I get older, I realize the brevity of this life is it's not too long ago I remember that I was the same age that my daughters are now. It seems like yesterday. I encourage you all to see this new year as an opportunity, an opportunity to use the lessons you have learned through affliction and trials this past year and the past years of your life. Use these as opportunities to empathize with those who are hurting in the same way maybe you have hurt. To be compassionate on the lost souls who have no promise of purpose in their trials as we believers do. And to recognize that the Lord is molding us into the image of Christ as He chips away the rock of sin He chips away those rocks of sin from our life like the master sculptor that he is. May we all choose to find the joy in the inevitable and various trials that we face this new year.